Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series. I'm Stacey McKenna and I will be moderating today's discussion. We are pleased to have Mr. Joseph Humeyer, Executive Director of the Center for a Secure Free Society, join us to discuss from the Middle East to Venezuela, from crisis to conflict. Mr. Humeyer will speak for roughly five to 10 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar, so I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Joseph Humer. Okay, well, first of all, uh, let me, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank the Middle East Forum for this invitation and for allowing me to present to you a bit of the work that we do, that I do, uh, looking at a part of the world that probably doesn't get discussed too much in, uh, in policy circles that focus mostly on the Middle East, which is Latin America. Uh, a lot of the work that I've done at the center uh, has been to connect uh, what the Defense Department calls trans-regional threat networks that primarily exist uh, in the Middle East, but have extended into uh, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit of a story just to get things kicked off. And, and, and the story kind of begins with Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela is uh, what I would say the worst humanitarian crisis uh, in the world today. Now, I, I completely understand that there is a more outflow uh, of refugees from Syria. Uh, there's also more of an internal displacement in Congo. But if you add the uh, economic dimension, if you take into factor the economic crisis, uh, Venezuela is very much unparalleled. We're talking about uh, more than 1 million percent inflation, which is really unheard of in modern day. Um, and we also are talking about uh, the shortage of basic necessities such as uh, electricity, uh, oil in, in a country that is has the largest oil reserves or one of the largest oil reserves in the world. There's a fuel shortage going on right now in Venezuela. Basic medicine is is uh, is, is a huge shortage as well in the country, uh, and this is all before the pandemic. This is before COVID nineteen. So uh, Venezuela has been in this precarious position for uh, roughly going on about three or four years now. So I go to Latin America, I travel quite a bit to the region, and in my travels, uh, I try to convince or try to persuade policymakers in the region to look at this connection with the Middle East more seriously, that I think it plays heavy into to what we're seeing in Venezuela. Uh, and as you can imagine, that's not an easy uh, endeavor. So uh, I, I try to make it uh, narrate, narrate this connection through a story. So I'm gonna tell you the story exactly uh, as I tell it to, as I told it to President Bolsonaro in Brazil, or to advisors or President Duque in Colombia uh, to kind of emphasize the, the historic nature and the longevity of the Middle Eastern connection to Venezuela. So the story starts with a uh, lieutenant colonel that had a high political ambition to try to capture his country by force, but failed, only later to eventually get elected as president. Once this lieutenant colonel became president, he immediately nationalized industry throughout the country he took the natural resources to fund uh, a revolution, both internally in his country, but also throughout the region and connected it to other revolutions around the world. Uh, this Lieutenant Colonel turned president died after 14 years in power, but not before leaving a legacy of uh, crime, conflict and uh, corruption. So when I tell this story to any policymaker in Latin America, they immediately look at me after I say the first few words and say, Joseph, we know who you're talking about. You're talking about Lieutenant Colonel Hugo Chavez. We know the story well. And I'll just pause for a second and look back at them and say, I'm not. I'm actually talking about Lieutenant Colonel Gamil Abdel Nasser, uh, the historic president from Egypt and leader of the Pan-Arab nationalist movements. I've actually learned a lot from the writings of Dr. Pipes on 
Arab nationalism. Uh, and, and the point of that story is the similarity between Chavez's story and Nazar's story is more than a coincidence. There is tremendous amount of history between uh, particularly Syria uh, and uh, Venezuela that I can't get into in, into this presentation, but uh, this is a, a sort of a precursor to understanding the Middle Eastern influence in, in that country. So let me just, because of time, let me just fast forward to what's going on today, because that's obviously uh, a bit of the history with the Arab networks. But in, in essence, what we're looking at today, and I'm sure many of you are watching on the headlines, uh, has to do with Iran. And, and, and Iran is a, a, a increasingly visible player, uh, not just in Venezuela, but in other countries in Latin America, it has established a network pretty much since the beginning of the, the revolution in 1979. Uh, I think Iran has gradually made a calculation, a strategic calculation uh, over time that its uh, greatest disadvantage is geography, that its uh, principal adversaries aren't just in the Middle East, uh, namely Israel, uh, but also now uh, Saudi Arabia, but it also has principal adversaries in the West, namely the United States. But with the United States, it has that geographic disadvantage. And so over time, particularly in the 21st century, I think Iran has made an effort to diminish that disadvantage. Now they can't do what the United States does. They can't send aircraft carriers to the Caribbean. So what they've done is they've erected asymmetric networks. They've teamed up with drug cartels. They've teamed up with old former communist networks. They've actually teamed up with Russia and China, all in an effort to establish an air bridge, very similar to the air bridge that they have or the land bridge that they have with Syria to, to create a logistical uh, a network that allows them to have a presence in the Western Hemisphere, not to the level, obviously, that it has a presence in the Middle East, but at least in an attempt to show a credible threat to the United States. So that brings me to what you're probably listening to or reading uh, currently in the headlines, which is uh, Mahan Air. Uh, Mahan Air, as everyone knows, is the dedicated airline to the Quds Force of Iran, the same airline that has shuttled uh, IRGC uh, uh, folks and, and supplies and, and, and equipment from Iran to Syria in support of the dictator Bashar al-Assad, has also supported the Houthi rebels in Yemen, uh, has been sanctioned since 2011 by the Department of Treasury. Uh, Mahan Air uh, has been flying regular flight flights in and out of Venezuela since April 22nd. Now this actually happened last year, in April of last year, uh, Mahan Air took one flight to Venezuela and what I believe to be to prepare the route that they were going to they were going to take because it's a long flight from Tehran to, to Venezuela and it has to go and it has to have an overflight pattern that goes over countries that don't restrict its flight. Um, since April 22nd of this year, there's been upwards of at least 16 flights uh, from Mahan Air arriving to the northernmost point of Venezuela called the Paraguana Peninsula where there's a uh, large, I think the third largest in the world refinery complex. And ostensibly what the Iranians say is they're, they're there to help Venezuela with uh, their oil refinery so that they can uh, uh, curb the fuel shortages. But we've looked at, I'm sorry, we looked at Iran's networks for over a decade in Venezuela. And there's a dual use nature to the commercial uh, networks that have military applications. For instance, Iran has set up uh, automobile and tractor factories that also do procurement of minerals for its WD programs in the homeland. Uh, they've set up uh, projects on motors and chemical plants with Venezuela's military industry, which potentially could serve as a dual use project for rocket fuel for propellants and mechanics for propulsion systems for its missiles. Uh, so we've seen this evolve over time and there's been ebbs and flows to the, to, to the intensity of those projects. But now that with Iran's literally had 16 flights and plane folds of who knows uh, 
it was exactly arriving to Venezuela, this has now become an increasingly concern for uh, the United States, the Department of Defense, and obviously for, for the United States as a, uh, as a whole. And so that kind of leads me to, and I'll, I'll end with this, is, uh, you know, for a long time in the policy community, I'm here in Washington, and I spent a lot of time with uh, policymakers that focus on Latin American policy. Uh, for a long time, the Iranian network was looked at as primarily as an intelligence network. That it, it was in the, the Latin America, it was in this part of the world, but it was primarily just spying. It was looking at uh, building political allies. It was looking at perhaps creating uh, a terror uh, infrastructure that would be used as a defensive nature if there was ever a conflict in the Middle East. But rarely would, did anyone ever could suggest that Iran would create an offensive capability, something that would allow them to threaten the United States in ways that may, they have been able to threaten us in uh, the Middle East. And now uh, that calculation is quickly changing. Just in the last few weeks, I've been called by, uh, by a half dozen agencies to give our assessments and our analysis because this, this increasing presence in Venezuela has uh, changed the calculation, at least to consider that Iran will try to threaten uh, the United States and the Caribbean in ways similar to the way it has threatened the United States and the Persian Gulf, or at least it will try. Uh, so with that, I think I think that's uh, pretty much what I wanted to uh, present on. Uh, I also, I didn't mention this in the, the presentation, but we've also dealt a lot with uh, the Hezbollah terror designations that have taken place in Latin America. There's four countries in the region that have designated Hezbollah uh, last year in 2019. There's more to be expected uh, this year, hopefully with, you know, with the pandemic has delayed things some. So I can, I can answer questions about that as well, if that's of interest to you. Thank you so much. So I guess the first one right off the bat is, so what can the U.S. do to curb the Iranian influence in Venezuela? I think there's two things that we have to understand about the Iranian influence, and this is, goes into like what kind of measures can be taken to, to deter it. Uh, first is we have to understand that how Iran presents itself in Latin America, and it's not the same as it does in the Middle East. Uh, it doesn't present themselves as uh, the leader of the Shia uh, uh, movements worldwide. It doesn't present itself as a theocracy per se. It, it presents itself as an anti-imperialist movement. Even the way they describe the revolution, when they describe the revolution in Latin America, uh, they, they kind of leave out the religious component and they say it's actually just a social movement designed to protect natural resources. That's why we did the revolution in Iran because uh, the UK was stealing all our oil. Uh, and that is something in Latin America that resonates. When you talk about natural resources, when you talk about anti-imperialism, uh, that is something that resonates. So I think we have to get that narrative right, and we have to understand to counter that narrative specifically uh, in Latin America. And the second thing I would say that we need to do is we need to build a better neighborhood. Uh, essentially, the more partners the United States have in Latin America, the harder it is for Iran. Venezuela is not one of those partners. Venezuela is a country that arguably we've already lost. Uh, so we might not be able to contest uh, Iran in Venezuela, but we could contest them in Colombia. We can contest them in Brazil. We can contest them in Mexico. Uh, and so we need to focus on the countries where we have strengthened, strengthened in relationships and strengthen those relationships so that we can uh, nudge out the Iranians. Thank you. I'm sure that subject was difficult to cover in such short a time. Um, how deep is the Hezbollah penetration in Latin America? It's very, I mean, Hezbollah is present in just about every country in Latin America at some level. Now, when you get into the granular aspect of their networks, uh, you know, you break it into different kind of categories. Uh, in Latin America, a lot of folks consider them to be Hezbollah supporters, meaning they're not uh, card-carrying Nasrallah-approved Hezbollah members or, or members of the ESO terror network, uh, Unit 910. Nonetheless, I, I've, I've kind of pushed back against that narrative quite a bit because nonetheless, it, it, you know, whether they're supporters, whether they're facilitators, whether they're financiers, at the end of the day, the purpose is the same. 
is to be able to build Hezbollah's asymmetric capabilities worldwide to be able to threaten Israel and the United States. So whether that is a money launderer or whether that is a drug trafficker, it goes towards the same purpose. Uh, in Latin America, Hezbollah has become very prominent with drug cartels uh, because Hezbollah has that global presence. So, they, so if a cartel wants to move its illicit narcotics to uh, the Middle East or wants to move it to Europe even, uh, Hezbollah has money laundering networks that can facilitate that. So uh, that's allowed them to have a close marriage, particularly with, I'd say, three cartels, or maybe four, uh, the Setas cartel in, in Mexico, the uh, Oficina de Invigado in Colombia, and uh, more and more the um, uh, PCC, uh, the, the uh, Partido uh, Comando Comunista de, de Brazil, the Brazilian criminal gang. Thank you. What impact, if any, has the coronavirus had on Venezuela and what efforts has the regime taken to contain it? Well, the regime has done very little. I mean, they, you know, on the, on the surface, they've held a national lockdown. They've, you know, made statements. They've actually partnered with China, Cuba, and Russia to receive medical supplies and medics, uh, doctors. I think it's the only country in Latin America that has Chinese uh, doctors present in their territory to deal with COVID. But the problem is uh, they don't have the ability, I mean, they're a broke and uh, institutionally weak regime. So uh, while they may have strength in asymmetric fashion, they don't have weak, uh, they don't have strength in a governance faction, fashion. So they don't have the ability to really do much inside the country. Uh, and most people in the country, I mean, they're dying of dengue, they're dying of measles, they're dying of other diseases. So COVID just becomes another uh, you know, disease and a long list of diseases that could potentially kill you in Venezuela. So un unfortunately, uh, there isn't much to do in Venezuela to contain the virus, but maybe on the, in a weird way, there's you know, some good news is uh, the infections are, are, you know, we're never going to know how bad it is, but it probably won't be as bad because the people of Venezuela have a lot bigger problems. Uh, to what extent, if any, is Venezuela involved in abetting illegal immigration to the U.S., specifically to aid infiltration of terrorists and spies? So I don't know if it's so much illegal immigration, um, although there has been uh, some of a concern. I, some people may remember the Central American caravans from 2018 and even some last year. Uh, there wasn't a direct connection to Iran on that, but there was a direct connection to Venezuela on that. Venezuela had supported uh, some of the logistical preparation, planning and financing of those caravans, uh, that those weren't organic migration movements. Those were uh, orchestrated, uh, manipulated migration. And uh, by extension, being that Iran's very close to Venezuela, there was a, a concern that that might be a possibility. But what Iran's done on the migration front isn't so much on the illegal side, it's on the legal side. It's on the, it's on the intelligence side. It's on the ability to establish uh, a, uh, how do I describe this, a, a dual identities uh, by not just uh, folks in Iran, but in its uh, broader uh, proxy network in the Middle East, whether they're Iraqis, uh, Syrians, uh, Lebanese, or, or whoever, have been able to use the Venezuelan migration system to not just cr uh, get a document, but to create a full fake identity. So they would say there could be somebody presenting themselves to the United States for a visa application, and they say that they're uh, Jose Marulanda, and they turn out to be a Syrian, uh, a Syrian national that is using a fake name. So that's that's been the largest concern. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security is well aware of this and has launched uh, an investigation into this because it 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 it. it it, it's, it's, it's a problem. Thank you. Is Venezuela a lost cause? Will the U.S. give up on Venezuela and allow the present regime to continue their repression? So the best way to think about Venezuela is to no longer think about it like a country. 
it no longer exists like any kind of Westphalian sovereign nation state. The democratic system went out the window a long time ago. The best way to think about Venezuela is as a network. Uh, and that network extends beyond the geographic territory of Venezuela, it extends into Colombia, it extends all the way down to Bolivia and Argentina and all the way up into Mexico. So the best way to deal with Venezuela is not to try to do anything inside Venezuela, but to deal with the network that exists outside Venezuela. Uh, because Maduro depends on that network. If that network were to go away or be to be diminished, he would fall on his own. He has no real political capital inside the country, but he has maintained his iron grip on power because his, uh, his regional and extra regional network have propped him up to do so. So I think that's kind of going back to one of the questions I mentioned earlier, or one of the answers I mentioned earlier, uh, building a, big, a better neighborhood around Venezuela is probably the best way to deal with Venezuela. Thank you. How sympathetic are the media and governments in South America to the threat of Iranian influence? So I, that's a good question. Uh, increasingly, they are more concerned and they're more attentive and aware of this. That when Soleimani was uh, uh, killed in, in January, I think that actually uh, I was surprised at how much attention in Latin America they gave to that. Uh, I got called up to do uh, more than 100 interviews in about three weeks uh, about that, mostly in Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, and you know, the number one question that the press would ask is, What's the good force? You know, who is Qasem Soleimani? Because in Latin America, he wasn't a known quantity, a known, a known figure. But uh, with that, I should say that, I should actually bring this up, that Iran has a, uh, a Spanish-speaking uh, television station that uh, they use to push out their own propaganda in the region. It's called Hispan TV. It's based out of Tehran, but it has satellites in Spain and also in different countries in Latin America. They often use local correspondence from, from allied nations and state-controlled or state-owned media from their partners, such as Cuba, uh, Venezuela, or in, at a time, Bolivia. So they have a 24-hour broadcasting in Spanish in six, at least 16 countries in Latin America. So there's actually an article that Radio Farda did on, on Hispan TV uh, that I, I was quoted in, and, and I, you know, I hope I can send it to you and hopefully distribute it. But that is something worth paying attention to because they've invested a lot of time and money into their communication platforms uh, in Spanish. Is Iran using Venezuela more as a proxy or to compile resources and ship them back to Iran? Iran is using Venezuela as a platform, much like it uses Syria, to be able to establish a logistical network to operate throughout the entire hemisphere. Uh, why is Bashar al-Assad so important for Iran? Why has Syria been so critical for, uh, for Iran's support? It was because it's the land bridge between Lebanon and Iran, right? They need to be able to establish that to get penetrate through the Shia crescent into uh, the Arab world. Well, in that sense, Venezuela is their air bridge into the Western Hemisphere. They need Venezuela to be able to establish their connections in Central and South America. Venezuela is geostrategically located right at the heart of these two continents. And, and they've established it, but the key to this is actually the way they've partnered with Iran, I'm sorry, the way they partner with Russia and China. I'm not sure that Iran partners with Russia, China everywhere in the world like this, but at least in the part of the world that I look at in Latin America, they work hand in glove. Uh, they, it, it, that's a, to the point that this Mahan Air flight that's coming to uh, Venezuela uh, repeatedly now, it actually uh, uh, comes, uh, flies also to China. So the, the actual flight pattern is Iran to China, back to Iran, to uh, Algeria down to Venezuela. So just to kind of show you the, the level of the connections. And then in my center, we have a term that we use. We actually have a report coming out today. It's called the VRIC. It's a play off the term BRIC from, you know, the Goldman Sachs term that talked about emerging economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China. But we said that, you know, that never really emerged. So we have this uh, uh, term that with the V, VRIC, that describes Venezuela, Russia, Iran, and China as an emerging intelligence and security cooperation.
Thank you. That sounds very interesting. Um, is Iran competing with China and Latin America at all? You were talking about the, the interplay between the two, but is there any competition there and is one of them winning? I mean, there's always a little bit of competition when you get to the networks and, you know, who wants to control which the, the, the communist networks are the biggest ones in Latin America. And, it, you know, you want to use those communist networks, you have to compete a little bit, you know, uh, amongst each other. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there's much more cooperation than there is competition. Uh, I think these countries, while they not may not be historic allies, I mean, they may not be permanent allies, but I think they uh, realize the old adage of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that enemy being Israel and the United States. So uh, the more that they can figure out a way to, to defeat us, the more that they uh, align together. And, and maybe in one day they would fight each other, but that would only, I think, happen in a very bad scenario, which is we're out of the, we're out of the picture. So. Uh, looks like we have about two questions left. What is the status of the U.S.-supported Venezuelan ops? opposition. How active is the U.S. support for this opposition? So the U.S. has been very active, especially under the Trump administration on Venezuela. Arguably, it's probably one of their top five national security priorities in the world. Um, President Trump, in some ways, has been ahead of the curve with Venezuela because the, the bureaucracy in the United States hasn't really paid attention much to Venezuela or Latin America writ large. When I say bureaucracy, I'm, I'm referring mostly to budgets and authorities. Our budgets and authorities aren't always aligned to put that much attention into Latin America, uh, even if the White House wanted to. Uh, with, with that said, you know, three years in, I think they've done a lot with uh, the Venezuelan opposition, particularly with uh, interim president Juan Guaido, and they've essentially propped him up to be able to be recognized by more than uh, 55 countries around the world, uh, destroying the legitimacy of Nicolas Maduro and, and creating a maximum pressure campaign against the Maduro regime in Venezuela. But that hasn't had as much success as we would like. Uh, we would, I think most people in the administration would admit that they would have hoped that Maduro would be gone by now and there would be a transition to free and fair elections in Venezuela, but it seems that there's an ability of resistance uh, within him and his regime. Uh, with that, I think, you know, if you, the latest news that happened in Venezuela is there was a botched uh, paramilitary mercenary raid of uh, Venezuelan military defectors in exile that unfortunately were led by two former, uh, well, three former Green Berets, two of which have been captured in Venezuela. So this is not escalated to a point where there's uh, Americans now that are in prison in Venezuela. Uh, and, and so I think that, unfortunately, I think things with, between the Trump administration, the United States and Venezuela will escalate. Thank you. What are the chances that, a, that elements of the military will stage a successful coup? At this point, I think it's zero to none. Uh, there's been many attempts to, to spark this military revolt and uprising, but it was a flawed, lo of, uh, flawed logic. Uh, I think uh, many, even in the administration and other places, many folks thought that the key ingredient to uh, uh, unseating Nicolas Maduro was to get the military on your side. Uh, the problem with that is that the military is a failed institution in Venezuela. Uh, there's many institutions in Venezuela that don't work right now. Probably one of the most historic is the energy institution, right? They have a state-owned enterprise for one of the largest uh, uh, oil reserves in the world. Now, if even if Juan Guaido were to take power tomorrow and want to turn on the spigot and produce oil the way they did in the 90s, uh, he couldn't do it because the oil institution is broken. Well, if we can appreciate that the oil institution is broken in Venezuela, we should also be able to appreciate that the military institution is also broken in Venezuela. Uh, they may have uniforms and they may have ranks, but they're not trained, they're not combat effective. They haven't been uh, maintained through echelons of training to be able to have that combat readiness so that if they were to engage in an operation, they could actually unseat Nicolas Maduro. The other problem is Maduro with the Chavez, they, the revolution, they prepared for that exact same scenario, like most dictators tend to do. They created militias, they created 
their version of Revolutionary Guards to be able to deter any type of military uprising, which is why it's no surprise that uh, there's been at least six or seven uh, attempts at a military revolt since 2000, since essentially since 2017, and all of them have failed. The most recent is the these military defectors that try to uh, come into Venezuela uh, this past Sunday. Thank you so much. And I guess in closing, can you give our viewers uh, somewhere to go if they'd like to find a little more information on this? Yeah, absolutely. I've been a proud partner with the Middle East Forum for a long time. So uh, I'm a writing fellow. I've written some articles that are on the website in, I think, MEF and also with the Gatestone Institute. Uh, that said, uh, I direct our own organization. We're called the Center for a Secure Free Society. Our website is securefreesociety.org. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. And also, uh, my Twitter handle is at JM Humire. Uh, my last name is H U M I R E. I've learned to become more active on Twitter than I used to be. So I do tend to post my thoughts and other things on social media as well. So uh, that's the way you can find us. And, um, and if you speak Spanish, you'll see me a lot more on TV than, than, uh, than in English. Oh, and also, uh, there's a weekly segment on the John Bachelor Show. If, for those that don't watch the John Bachelor Show, highly recommended, nationally syndicated. You can find it, uh, if not in the radio, you can find it on a podcast. And uh, we have a segment every Tuesday called The New World Report, where we talk about the, the new world, the Western Hemisphere. All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Kimeyer, for joining us. We have come to the close of our webinar today. Please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings for next week. And thank you all for joining us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Absolutely. Thank you.